Hi, and welcome to the Tell Me More podcast. I'm not Katie Reed Hodges. I am Luke Starin. I'm your guest host this week. Today, Dr. Wiles and I have a conversation about how we make sense of culture, progressive revelation, and how we figure out how to share the gospel in the places where we are. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, hi. Once again, I'm Luke Stair. I am not Katie Reed Hodges, who is on vacation. <laughs> and I am here with Dr. Wiles in the podcast studio. And we're here to talk about 1 Corinthians 3 and unpack this past week's sermon. So, Dr. Wiles, what are you thinking about kind of in the wake of preaching on Sunday? Well, first of all, welcome, Luke. It's um, good to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have First of all, this is a good I, trial run for maternity yeah, leave. I would say we're glad to have you in general uh, at First Baptist Arlington. So let me just say that, and then certainly glad to have you here today. Well, you know, um, I think that First um, Corinthians, as I've said, it gives us an opportunity to to do a lot of things. You know, one of them is is to to learn uh, first of all to climb back into the first century and see what was going on in the first Very century different world. world. Yeah, really different, and trying to plant these churches in these thriving communities, um, which uh, which I'm really grateful for um, because I think in America today sometimes people they look at Christianity, particularly evangelical Christianity, maybe not mainstream. Um, I mean, you know, the main I mean, mainline churches. When they think of more evangelical churches, many people think, well, you know, Christianity is just this rural agrarian movement. <laughs> you know, it's never right. really, never really been alive in an urban context when actually nothing could be further from the truth. These early churches were in urban contexts in incredibly pluralistic societies. And so studying First Corinthians gives us a chance to climb back into that space a little bit and realize, okay, the church was established in the first century, and and there were these incredible pressures exerted upon it that um, gave great challenges to the early church. And so you had to you had to see these these early Christians make really clear theological decisions and ethical decisions, and in a spiritual context with a with something that was really brand new. If you think about it, right? <laughs> I mean, Jesus breaks into this first century with a radical message, and so. That that's why I love what we're doing right now. I feel like we're we're flexing our um, biblical interpretation muscles to where we have to see through uh, all the years and layers of context and try to understand what was happening then, and then bring it to Arlington, Texas, in the twenty first century. Right. So that's kind of generally what I see happening. Because uh, I think I think we forget that it was a radical message mm-hmm. because Jesus truly was something new, and we live in Western culture, which has been shaped by Christian thoughts and right. ideas for centuries. I mean, Christians invented hospitals and orphanages right. and the concept for what became welfare programs with the state. I mean, all of that originates out of Christian thought. We're just used to it. That's right. But none of that existed. That's right. So these early Christians had to make decisions in the moment Mm -hmm. about how to respond to the culture they lived in. Mm -hmm. And so on Sunday, you mentioned this idea of accommodation. And Mm -hmm. so the Corinthian church had accommodated to culture. And I was wondering Mm -hmm. if you could unpack that Mm -hmm. some more. Well, um, one of one of your um, 
mentors, at least theologically, being a Truett Seminary grad, will be David Garland. And uh, he has also been a mentor to me just because of his, um, his, his incredible scholarly output. How in the world Dr. Right. Garland has written all these commentaries, I have no idea. Goodness in fact, knows. I saw him last week and I told him, I said, I said, Dr. Garland, I just want to tell you, thank you for your commentary on First Corinthians. And, and I want you to know that it is, it's being used in Arlington, Texas every week right now. And, and he was so appreciative of that. Um, but, you know, Dr. Garland, is, along with several other scholars, say when they look at the Corinthian church, as, as Garland puts it, the world, the, the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that there was too much Corinth in the church. Mm. And so the, um, you know, in the, in the Corinthian context, you had these, um, uh, it, it was interesting because um, it was an ancient Greek city that had been Romanized. And so when it was Romanized, there was an opportunity for advancement in Corinth that you might not have had in Rome. In other words, there were, uh, you could move beyond the class that you were in based upon your successful entrepreneurship, that was actually possible in, in Corinth. So you had people there from various places across the world. So there was a lot of competition economically and mm -hmm. the people that were advantaged wanted to stay in the advantaged position, if that makes sense. And so they were patrons. And so they developed these patronages where, you know, they would um, bring people kind of into their orbit, if you will, and they needed to keep them at a certain level so that they could stay as patrons but there was the opportunity for others to um, ascend to that level. So there was all this competition outside of the church. And, um, and so evidently, one of the things we see in the church is some of these folks, maybe the ones whose homes were being used for the actual churches to meet in, right. were from the patronage, if that makes sense. So they were influential people in the culture, and they just wanted to pull that same kind of influence over into the church. And so, for example, when Paul talks about the challenge of celebrating the Lord's Supper, and he says, you know, you, 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 they usually had like a feast before the Lord's Supper. Well, these wealthy people, they were able to go ahead and eat. And the, the working people, you know, they're out working. Well, by the time they get there, the food's already eaten. They've, all the wine's been consumed. And now they want to have a worship service and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, why are you doing that? If, if you're going to do that, just, just, yeah, just, I mean, think about the fact that you're just taking something that exists already in the society and you're just playing it out in the church, acting like it's okay. And then the, some of the sexual immorality, uh, the idolatry, a lot of things that were just so prevalent in Corinthian society, Paul sees vestiges of that just carried over into the church. And so they're just accommodating the culture. They're just allowing the culture to shape their Christian lives, as opposed to contextualizing the gospel and realizing, okay, we've got to figure out how to take this gospel to the Corinthian community, but we can't compromise the core values of what Christianity teaches. And so the whole idea of equality is something that Christians believe in, that God's created all of us in His image, and we all have dignity and worth, that your station in life and the things that have made you successful may be in the corporate world. They don't necessarily translate into the church. You know, the right. ground's level at the foot of the cross. So Paul is is trying to lead them to see the difference between contextualizing something and just completely accommodating the culture. As I said Sunday morning, we face the same challenge today. It's a little different, but... In some ways, it's very similar. <laughs> it is, because the very things that are happening all around us, things like polarization or, or single-issue anger... Um, that we see lived out politically or just how, how the, how the uh, America has been so politicized, 
It's so easy to just bring that right into the church and act like it actually belongs here. You know, as I said Sunday morning, it, it when I when I hear, um, you know, whether whichever news outlet you're watching, it's just all of a sudden we've unquestioned, unquestionably just accepted. Okay, there are red states and blue states. You know, I grew up in America. Okay, and I I grew up in Alabama. Me well, too. That's right. So we have that in common. Um, well, there's complexity in every community. You you can't just paint with such a broad stroke and act like you under understand everything that the people in that in that state believe right. and ascribe to and espouse and care about. But it's so easy just write it out. Well, that's a red state. That's a blue state. And and then those the issues that lead them to make those decisions. Some people now are actually bringing them into the church to where it's almost like you're supposed to have red churches and blue churches. Which just fascinates me. That that is that is a, that's an ancient mistake of accommodation. You know, just in other words, not thinking critically about what we're supposed to really be doing and offering to this community, and to and to our our country, our world, if you will. Um, it it's not just allowing everything that exists in the culture and me come into the church and just reflect the culture in my church so much so that it shapes how we make decisions and how we do life together. The opposite is supposed to be happening. I'm supposed to be reflecting Christ in my culture. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, a, I'm supposed to be able to overcome some of these things that, um, that, that trip us up uh, outside the church. The power of the Spirit of God draws us together. The mission of Jesus is bigger than red and blue. You know? Amen. <laughs> the mission of Jesus is what drives the church. And if we lose sight of that, then we, in my opinion— it, it, I feel like Paul would almost be be saying to us today, it's not the, that the church is in America, is there's too much of America in the church. You know? mm-hmm. So we've, we've got to battle these very same demons, if you want to call them that, uh, today, because we have to contextualize the gospel. Absolutely, we've got to speak the language of the culture, but we can't just allow the culture to shape the core meaning of the message. You know? Right. So you know that as a missiologist, it's just uh, it's a profound mistake, and uh, I'm burdened about it, um, just like Paul was. Uh, and so I think that's why one of the things I love about First Corinthians, you you find a lot of love and grace, but you also find confrontational language, um, because Paul believes so vehemently that the gospel's at stake here, and it's worth fighting for. And uh, that's why I think this serves as just a great uh, seed bed for conversation for our church. So, I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. So when you think about this role of contextualization, on Sunday you told a story about this panel you did with seminary students mm-hmm. from Truett Seminary, which I love, mm-hmm. and Northern, Northern Seminary, correct. which is also a great seminary. Mm-hmm. And you told the story of this, this student who says, no, we absolutely should not change right. the orthodox right. teaching of the church. Right. But then, if I recall, they talked about the need to be able to communicate that mm-hmm. well. So how does mm-hmm. the church go about that process of contextualizing wisely? Right. And what a man, what a great question. Why don't you and I figure it out right now and write a book about it? You want to? I think <laughs> multiple people have tried. <laughs> but, uh, well, I think, I think we have to look for guidance, obviously. So, for example, Jesus says that we're salt and light. Okay. Um, well, I... I love that that uh, that particular view that that those metaphors, if you want to use them that way. So when I think about the culture, okay, the culture needs to hear the message in a way that makes sense to them. 
but it's got to resonate with them. But we've also got to trust the Spirit of God to make that happen. This is a spiritual enterprise. Yes. And and so there's another image that I believe Jesus gave us when Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is like the farmer who went out and sowed the seed. And whether he stayed up all night or whether he slept all night, the seed would grow because the seed is good. So first of all, I embrace the view that the message of the gospel is good. It's good seed. So that's good. Second, I've got to plant it, if you will, sow it in my culture and then trust it to do its work. So in the sowing of it, I can't change the constituency of it. That's not my job. I'm not, I don't right. have enough authority to do that. But I've got to learn how to plant. And so a farmer knows good and well. I used to pastor two rural churches. And uh, one of those churches was a, uh, primarily the, the members of the church were peanut farmers. The other one, they were cotton farmers. Well, they didn't just go out and throw the, uh, the seeds on top of the ground and go home. They they looked, they considered it. Yeah, they considered the land, the contour of the land. Sometimes they would say, you know, this particular field has never really had good drainage. It's just, it's just, that's just not how it works. So I've got to, I've got to build some drainage ditches because I don't want to just overrun my crops. Others of them said, this is really dry land. And, uh, and I know that it's going to struggle to produce these peanuts. So I'm going to have some irrigation brought in. In other words, they were contextualizing the actual sowing of the seed on their property. They studied it. It took some skill, some effort. Well, I, I look at that and I think, okay, that's exactly what I believe Jesus was saying about the gospel. Um, we're salt and light. Well, that means we're supposed to be the kind of people that that create a little bit of thirst in someone else. Well, how do I do that? Well, if I'm if I'm angry all the time, if my message is delivered with fists clenched, and and if it feels like it's a power struggle, if I'm trying to overcome and overthrow the culture with this coercive approach. Um, to the expression of Christianity, I just don't know that ever resonates well. But I see it all the time, though, Luke, in my society right now. It's almost like it's a, a Christianity is 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 used, almost weaponized sometimes, and and used to serve the interests of something really different. Might we say it's been accommodated <laughs> to the love of power? Right. It, that's how it feels to me. That'd be my impression. I just I'm quoting you, yeah, so that's so, why it's your impression. Yeah, I just don't. Um, <laughs> I just don't believe that works. Jesus didn't say that we're we're supposed to overthrow the culture. We're salt and light. So when you point light somewhere, light exposes, but light also guides. And light brings warmth and it directs and salt preserves. I mean, there's value in in the way we actually share the message. So 1 Corinthians to me is a great example. You've got some direct language from Paul, but you have the most beautiful chapter on love in the whole Bible. So there has to be love. It's all laced with love. And so that means, I think, when I'm trying to share the gospel with my culture, first of all, my my first go-to is to listen. Because if I don't hear and see people and what they're really facing and what their real questions are, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that they're ever going to hear the message per se. So in a personal relationship, it's like, you know, Katie and I talked a little bit about this last week, there's a difference between addressing something publicly and culturally. Like if, like if, uh, you know, sometimes I'll be called by someone from the news media to say, Hey, uh, Dr. Wiles, this has happened. What's the church's view on that? Well, that, that's a, that's a usually a big picture kind of conversation, but that's not how I talk to people in a coffee shop, you know? No. So, and that's where we all live. We all live in the coffee shops and in grocery store lines and in the ballpark and in, in our neighborhood gatherings and at, at 
dinners and those kinds of things. That's that's where the gospel's carried. So that's where you enter into relationships with people. And so rather than accommodate everything that they necessarily, may necessarily bring to us, there's a difference between understanding and accommodating. So we have to understand, and that requires listening and learning. But then the discernment, the dexterity of thinking to myself, okay, this ground right here is really hard. Okay, I get it. I'm not just going to be able to just overwhelm it with a bunch of seed. That's not going to work. I'm going to have to till the soil for a while here on this one, you know, just like a farmer would. Or this one here, man, this seems really ripe. These people want to have a real conversation. Well, good. It's well, harvest then, time. Let's go, you know. So just some discernment. And I don't have to cater. And that discernment comes from God, That's not right. from us. That's right. It's a spiritual thing. I mean, 1 Corinthians uh, 2, um, where Paul talks about um, how the Spirit reveals the deep things of God to us. And the Spirit shows us things we would never we would never imagine on our own. So that's the insight I believe the Spirit of God gives us. And so every day, why wouldn't we every day, you know, just whatever happens to you in the morning, why wouldn't we every day, first thing, just say, Lord, I have no idea what today's going to bring me. So I, I have no clue. So um, here's what I'm just going to ask you real simply. Would you just give me the wisdom and the leadership of your spirit to be good in the moment when it, when I'm called upon? Just just do that for me today. That that I, I try to make that little simple prayer every day. That's just a simple acknowledgement that as I go through my day, I have no idea what I'm going to encounter. But I'm asking the Spirit of God, help me be good in the moment. And I wish I could tell you, Luke, that I feel like I always do it well. I don't. Sometimes I... I let I let something go that I shouldn't, you know, some opportunity will pass me by and I'll, and I'll think back on it at the end of the day and go, you know, that was some pretty fertile soil there. And I just I just walked right past it. I'll give you a quick example. Yesterday, uh, my wife's in the hospital right now and uh, doing doing much better. So thank the church for prayers for her. So uh, we had a nurse who had been with us for a, a day or so and um, bright, young uh, lady. And I had just felt this impression to just say something to her about the gospel, but I didn't do it. You know, I just, I just let it go. And so, um, I saw her again later that evening and she was kind of in a hurry, you know, she's working, I get it. And, um, and I, I don't know why, but I just felt like I said to say something. So all I said to her was, I said, you know, we've been watching you. You've been working really hard. I just wonder where you're from. And she looked at me and she said, well, I'm from Nebraska. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And we just had some friends move to Nebraska. I said, you know, I'll be honest with you. I've never been in Nebraska. There's okay? not much there. I just don't know much about it. I have some friends just moved there. And she said, oh, really? Where did they move to? I said, well, they moved to this little small town. And she said, okay, well, what's, oh, okay, let me think about it. So anyway, no big deal. So last night um, I get back to the hospital. Well, it's that, that shift change, okay? And I'm still feeling this impression. She comes in. And, um, and she says, you know, I'm getting ready to leave the, my shift is over and, uh, but you know, we're going to hand you off to another nurse and, and, um, just want to make sure is everything okay. Is there anything I can do for y'all or anything you need to know before I leave? And, and Cindy was like, no, we're okay. And I said, you know, I, I just want to just say something to you real, real quickly. And I don't want to be offensive. And she said, well, well, what is it? I said, well, you know, I'm the pastor down here at first Baptist on it, just right down the road. And um, just want you to know, we have people in our church who I think are very similar to you, young professionals, single adult, looking for, you know, community or whatever. And she said, really? She said, you know what? I just moved here recently. I've, I'm from Nebraska, but I just really have arrived. And I, to be honest with you, I haven't even made any friends yet. I'm just, I'm working. 
She said, but I actually have the weekends off. And um, I said, really? And she said, so next thing you know, she starts asking me all these questions, you know, and um, very sweet conversation. Her supervisor comes in and says, hey, what's going on? And she said, well, I'm just kind of hanging out with the pastor here. We're having a conversation. <laughs> and, the, and the supervisor said, okay, that's great. She said, well, you know, you're, we, we got one other thing to do before you go. She said, okay. She said, I'll be there in a second, you know. And so, and then we kind of finished up the conversation. So I didn't present the whole gospel. I didn't, you know, ask her about her beliefs or whatever. I just entertained, I just followed the prompting of the spirit. And it was so fascinating to me that the Lord just immediately confirmed it with her openness. And so that's the kind of thing I guess I want to lead our people to understand. It's not rocket science. It's, and not, it's not something that only pastors can do. That's right. It's just so, it's just normal. You know, the church is important to me. So I just asked her if she might want to visit one day, you know, and the next thing you know, she's like, well, you know, I just don't have any friends, man. So, so when do they meet? Well, what do they do when I'm not, I mean, I'm just sitting there getting all these questions and I thought, thank you, Lord. Good reminder. It's okay when you feel that prompting. And to me, that's light. I feel like I shed a little bit of light, you know, there was no, there was no argument about what do you believe about this particular hot button topic? We weren't there yet. There's no need for that at that point. So I guess I'm, I'm, I feel like that in Corinth, you had people who were so spiritual. I mean, they had all these temples, and there was so much emphasis on on um, on the spiritual things. Well, it was ripe for conversation. I think Paul knew that, and I think one of the things Paul was saying was, don't get so far pulled down the road to where you just completely accommodate what all these pagans are doing, but don't lose sight of the opportunity. You've got an easy avenue for conversation because they're all spiritual people. They're making sacrifices all the time. They saw it all the time. Right. It's not like you had to convince these people there was something beyond them. They all believe that. And he just wanted to give them the encouragement to present a true gospel in the midst of it. So anyway. I think that's great. When I was in seminary and reading books about missiology, which is the study of missions, mm -hmm. One of the things I think that was helpful in distinguishing accommodation versus contextualization is if you think about water, water takes the shape of whatever container it's in. The gospel message is like water. And so if you pour it into yeah. a different container, it's still water. Mm -hmm. It hasn't changed, but it takes the shape of the container and it makes sense in that shape. Now you can mix things into it, but then it's not water anymore. I don't want to drink mud. Right. Um, it ruins the water. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to accommodate or mix things into it, mm -hmm. but the gospel is able to take the shape of the culture that it's in without changing its message. That's a message. great way to put it. I love that because that is the truth. And I think that's what I was hearing from these eight seminary students when we said to them, okay, y'all are young adults. We're being told that young adults are leaving the church in droves. And I'm still looking at all that. I know you are as well, Luke, trying to sort through what are what are the trends saying to us? What is what is this information telling us? How do we read and discern culture? Right. What's happening? And um and so one of the suggestions that I've read and I've seen other churches do is say, well, the gospel for young adults, it it's um it it has parts of it that are just they're just no longer consistent with with where the culture's headed. You're on the wrong side of history on fill in the blank, this particular issue. There have been many of them. Um, <clears throat> well, so I, that's why I asked these seminary students, so what should we do? Those of us that were interviewing these seminary students were all already out in ministry, older than them. We said, so we're in positions of leadership and influence. So should we lead our entities, our churches? Should we try to get them to just change the message 
make it more palatable to where young adults can hear it and go, oh, okay, that's not too bad. Every one of them. The first one, the, like I said in my church, in the sermon Sunday, the first person that answered looked at me like I had two heads all of a sudden. She was like, well, why would you do that? I mean, this culture already has enough trendy, fatty things in it. Where is the truth? People want to know the truth. Now, they may not necessarily want to embrace it, but they at least want to believe you believe in it. Right. You know? And so... We do. Yeah. So every one of those young seminary students said, well, no, don't change the message. However... A couple of them said to us, but the way you share the message matters, you know, and, and how you hear what's happening to some of the young adults without being judgmental, you know. Well, I, when I heard that, well, that's salt and light. You know, you you discern a little bit of light here, you know, a little bit of light there, maybe sprinkle a little salt here, kind of like, like, like I said, like our farmers used to do. Might need to till that up a little. I may need to wait till next year before I really plant anything there. That's that's wisdom and discernment, and that's what I heard from them. I was encouraged, you know, to hear that, and uh, and you represent that generation. I mean, you're a young adult in 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 America, and um, I have a little more gray hair than they do, but <laughs> but you're a missiologist, so you're thinking about this. You're thinking about how do we share this message with this particular culture because this is our culture, and um, and so I think that studying Corinthians to me helps me learn some um, tools, if you will, because I'm watching how Paul did it and um, and seeing where he was willing to press because sometimes he would say, don't do this, you know, like sexual immorality. Flee it, he says. Just get away from it. You, you, you Run away. You just live, you're watching it all in front of you. Quit quit, quit messing with that. Be, be honest about how powerful it is. Well, uh, I appreciate his willingness sometimes to press in a little bit, and other times he'll even say in 1 Corinthians, you don't really have a word on this. I'll tell you what I think. Well, I love that honesty. That, to me, helps me to be able to think about in my own culture. I think there should be times where I say, mm, I'm not really sure about that. Run away from it, yeah, or, or we need to think about that some more. We need to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. So one of the things I think that helps us discern this idea of contextualization is a concept you brought up, which is a helpful hermeneutical or way of studying the Bible, and it's progressive revelation. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we'll encounter people in culture who say, well, you've changed your mind on slaves. You've changed your mind on women. You've changed your mind on all these things. Why aren't you changing your mind on this? Mm -hmm. So are we changing our minds? What's happening? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I do believe in progressive revelation. And so that's um, I think that's historically orthodox view of, of how God's revealed himself. And what that really means is, is that Revelation, by that, I don't mean the last book in the Bible. Some people hear that and they go, wait a minute, what, what are you talking about? It's God speaking to people. <laughs> That's right. Just him letting us know who he is. He's revealing himself. So obviously he creates the universe, everything that is. It's a reflection of God. It's a reflection of his will. In fact, I love how, you know, the scripture talks about how God just spoke it into existence, like his very breath brings us into existence. Well, think about how intimate that is, how intimate your breath is, you know, so this universe is an expression of the will of God. It reveals something about God. So it's revelatory. So in the scripture, when the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, well, that's a, it's a poetic way of saying it's just a reflection of who God is. It's consistent. It works. You know, these laws of nature are in effect that we study and we've learned and you can trust them. And, and because of that, life can take place, you know, so that's one thing. So, but when God did that, He only revealed a little bit about Himself. If you think about it, I mean, that's that's elementary 
uh, in terms of revelation. Romans 1. Yeah. So then as time progresses, God starts to reveal more of himself. So he calls Abraham and says to Abraham, I want you to be mine and I want to use you um, to be a blessing to all your family, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Okay, well, that's revelatory. It's a, it's a purposeful statement from God. It's redemptive in nature because human beings had sinned against God. So here's an answer. God's going to redeem us, and he's going to do it through humans. He's going to do it through actually through one family, if you will. We're all the families. <laughs> yeah, so it's for everybody. I think, let me back up for just as an aside and say, what a great example of contextualizing an incredible message. He's putting the message of redemption in the language of humanity. So God himself shows us how to do this. Okay. So, well, then as time progresses, Abraham's family gets really big. (laughs) Yes, it does. uh, And so then you come to the, the powerful story of the Exodus where God redeems Israel and shows us an example, if you will, kind of a beautiful take on just the power of redemption and setting people free. And so he speaks to Moses, and he reveals more about himself to Moses. Okay, Moses, um, let me give you this right here, the law. This will actually help Abraham's family understand. Here's what I expect out of you, more revelation. But he continues to reveal himself, and finally he starts whispering through the to the prophets, you know, into their ears, and they start um, discussing the fact that, well, there's a new day coming. There's a promised one coming, and there's this understanding that a new covenant is coming. And so you have this sense of progress, if you will, and every it, it, along the way, God just reveals more and more of Himself, and then finally, the the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. You know, when Jesus will say to His disciples, "Well, look at me, and you see God. God and I are one." And so He is the full revelation, personally, of God Himself. Well, now we've we have come a long way from just creation. You know, we have we, God in us. We do. So think about that. So Jesus comes, inaugurates the age that is to come, actually begins with the kingdom of God on earth. The spirit of God is given to us. And you're right. We've got the scripture. We've got uh, the testimony of the church for 2,000 years. We've got the presence of the spirit of God in us. So now God's revelation is much fuller than it was on that mountain when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So with that said, the responsibility we now have as Christians is to understand the revelation of God and apply it to the things that we we face and that we're challenged by, the issues of our day. So um, let's take, for example, in, in the book of Acts, the question was, okay, what about the Gentiles? Are Jesus, they in or are they out? Yeah, he's Jesus is a Messiah, but he's a Jewish Messiah. What, I mean, why, what would— It's a Hebrew word. Yeah, I was going to say, what would a Gentile—why would a Gentile care about a Messiah? However, Jesus wasn't just the Messiah. He was, but he wasn't just the Messiah. He's the Savior for the whole world. And so these these apostles, under the leadership of the Spirit, had to start asking God, so what about the Gentiles? Well, you go back and you look at the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and you find enough evidence in the Old Testament that the Gentiles have a chance to be a part of this, that the Jews actually are supposed to be a kingdom of priests for the rest of the world who would be Gentiles. One of them even gets the book of the Bible in the Old Testament. That's exactly right. So you've got this open door, if you will. Same, I would say the same kind of thing is true when you address an issue like slavery. You look at slavery, slavery was a part and parcel of the ancient world. We know that. In the first century it was, in the Roman Empire. But isn't it fascinating, in the in the New Testament, Paul gives you instructions on how to treat your slaves. Well, why would he do that? Because 
there there was no guidance in treating a slave in the Roman world. Slaves were property. You so, could do whatever you wanted absolutely. to do. Absolutely. So why would so why am I why am I reading the New Testament and Paul says, okay, husbands, here's here's how I want you to relate to your wives. Wives, here's how I want you to relate to your husbands. Parents, here's how I want you to relate to your children. Masters, here's how I want you to relate to your slaves. What? Why? That was new. Yeah. Why is that That's radical actually? And then you have an entire you know letter in the New Testament, Philemon, about a slave. Onesimus, and and the willingness of of Paul to intervene on behalf of a slave and appeal for his uh, goodwill for this master. Right. I mean that you're talking about radical. Well, and I think back to Romans 16, where Paul's writing from Corinth, and you have slaves That's right. mentioned alongside this guy Aristobulus, who's yes, likely a government official. I was in about Corinth. to say that's what we think, right? So it's fascinating. In other words. I'm seeing a trajectory. You mentioned that word, and I mentioned it Sunday. Progressive revelation. I'm also seeing a trajectory here moving in a positive direction, slavery. So guess what happens? The church finally comes to the conviction. Just like you said earlier, well, Christianity has given us hospitals and all of that. Yes, Christianity has also eradicated slavery, at least in the Western world. Came to the conviction that this is, this is. I mean, the consistent teaching of the Scripture is human beings are to be valued. Human life is valuable. And there's a trajectory there. Same with women. You look at how, I mean, obviously the Old Testament and ancient Christianity lived in a patriarchal society. We know that. So you couldn't just willy-nilly just dismiss everything. That would have that would have been so chaotic they'd have never heard the message of the gospel, right. I don't believe. However, you have multiple indicators, if you're paying attention, <laughs> in the New Testament about women, and that trajectory is moving in a positive direction. And so when we've made decisions about those issues, we're on good, solid hermeneutical ground. Here's the challenge, though. If sometimes we just want to take a current issue that we're facing today and change the church's view on it without any kind of hermeneutical rationale or without any kind of biblical understanding of a trajectory moving in a positive direction, well, that's when we're practicing accommodation. We're just trying to make the the gospel or the scripture fit my culture. We're not really being honest. And so, the, you know, issues like human sexuality, well, look in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and look at how consistent the message is. There is no trajectory. We're not killing them anymore. No, that's, the that's right. That's the trajectory. But but the idea of embracing and accepting, well, no, that, that's just not found in the Scripture. But there are multiple issues that I believe that would be true of. And so it's not necessarily that I would say that you'd say, well, the church just willy-nilly changed. Well, no. The church came to a deeper, richer understanding of a trajectory and a and using solid hermeneutical principles. So, for example, one of the one of the core principles of solid hermeneutics is let the text say what the text says. And so, <laughs> you know, you've got to actually let the text say what the text says. Now, we may not like what the text says, but you have to start there with the text. That's why I'll be honest with you, Luke. I'm much more comfortable with a real, honest liberal. And here's what I mean by that, a liberal theologian. Um, <clears throat> you know, Dr. Olson has just written a book about liberalism. One of right. our professors at Trevor, he's retired now, but still. Um, and this isn't liberal in the political sense. Right, no, I'm talking about the- theology, theological liberalism. Thank you. Well, I love to have conversations with someone who says, this is what the text says. I just don't believe it. That's, an, that's a theological liberal statement that's honest, okay? At least let the text say, well, don't twist the text to fit what you want it to say. That's An example the of this would be yeah. theological liberalism historically has denied things like the virgin birth of Christ. That's right. 
right. or the divinity of Christ. That's right. And But what I love about a true theological liberal will say, well, look, okay, Luke tells the story. Matthew claims that this was a virgin birth. Luke claims, my Matthew quotes Isaiah. Luke also claims this is a virgin birth. But come on. That can't happen. There, well, there are no examples of that. We know that. This is a kind of a mythological statement. If you, Not myth in the sense of just categorically untrue, but more of a cultural myth, a cultic myth around the birth of it's Jesus. It's only true in a spiritual sense. That's right. It makes Jesus' birth very um, unique and beautiful, which we believe it is. We just don't think he was born of a virgin. That's a theological liberal. Neither of us believe that. No, we, we be correct, of course. But the point is, a true theological liberal is at least going to let the text say what it says. But when you get to the point to where you say, well, that's not really what it says. Well, no, that is what it says. <laughs> you know. Now, you may have to come to grips with what you believe about it. And, um, and so I think that's where a solid biblical interpretation always begins with the text. Then you, then you implement the historical critical methodology in place to try to come to grips with the understanding of it. And so that's why I love historical criticism, textual criticism, you know, where the textual critics find the best text for us. I, I appreciate the work of source critics. Well, how did we get all these sources? Where did all this come from? How did they gather these materials or even form critics looking at the form morphology, the form of language? We don't believe the uh, Bible just fell out of heaven. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's why we need all these fields of, of academic biblical criticism because they help us find the truth, which none of us are afraid of. No, we're not afraid of the truth. And um, so... And I think if Paul were here today, I think Paul would push us to focus on the truth because I think he would tell us that's really what sets people free. And don't be afraid of it. But like you said, put it in a container where it will make sense. You know, that's that's I think that's our job. And here's what I also would say, Luke, I love I love the fact that God doesn't prescribe every generation in terms of how to do that. It's left to every one of us. We have to decide for ourselves in this generation, how am I going to contextualize the gospel for my culture? I don't have just definitive prescriptions on how to do it. I just have the obligation to do it. I think that's part of the beauty of this. It's part of the adventure of figuring this out. And I would tell you, um, the older I've gotten, the, the less dogmatic I am about so many things but the things that I am dogmatic about, I'm really dogmatic about. In other words, I've changed over time. There were times when if you were to ask me what's essential to all this, I would have given you a huge list. Well, that list probably gotten smaller, but I'm more deeply committed to it than I've ever been, if that makes sense. And that, to me, that's a part of maturity and discernment. <clears throat> I think that's beautiful. So, Well, we're coming up on time. <laughs> okay. I feel like there are a million more things <laughs> right. we could have talked about. Well, but it's good, though. Thank you for... Stepping in, we miss Katie today, but um, we're grateful to have you, Luke. I love your the the theological reflection that you bring, and I love the missiological commitment that you have, and you're just a great asset to our team. Well, and, thank uh, you. We'll have more of these conversations, I'm sure. We will. I will be the guest host during Katie Reed Hodges' maternity leave, so okay. she'll be back next week, okay. but then I'll be back eventually. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for today. Thank you.
for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening. Thank you.